Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Galatians, starting in chapter 3. If you wish to follow along and don't have a Bible, there are Red Pew Bibles in front of you. And while you're finding the scripture, I'd like to share with you a phrase that I learned many years ago and have heard it a lot, especially in Trace Dias. I think it embraces this sermon series Pastor Eric is sharing with us. I am the church. You are the church. We are the church together. Please listen to God's word from Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 to 14. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? Have begin, after beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing, if it is really for nothing? Does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? Consider Abraham. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand, then, that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. All who rely on observing law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by, be by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. And then chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. What I am saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave although he owns the whole estate. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. This is the word of the Lord. Word of explanation. Um, before we dive in here, we have been taking three weeks to preach through this brief series, We Are the Church, orienting us in general in our 
calling to be God's people, especially as we face, yeah, some potentially hard seasons down the road. And I did something I almost never do this week, which is I write sermons a couple of weeks ahead of time, and I had a whole third sermon planned out about our vision statement, preaching through that, which is not really my thing anyway, but it was going to be good, I think. But, um, <laughs> but as I sat with it this last two weeks, I felt an increasing sense that what we needed to do was actually, instead of do that, just step back and say, we've been talking about our being the church in terms of our taking ownership for our role as being the church, in terms of our calling to discipleship and follow Jesus and disciple other people. But I want to um, take some time to talk about the foundational realities behind all of that this morning. And so that's what we're going to do. But first, let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Father God, Speak to us the truth of your love for us in Jesus Christ. Be with us sinners as we sit under this. Be with me a sinner as I proclaim it. Open all of our hearts to the majestic and unsurpassable truths that you proclaim here. Pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I've said this before, but there are two great dangers to our souls. Two great enemies of Christianity. In the Bible. One of those enemies is what we could call rebellion. It is sort of lawless, active disobedience. And scripture certainly does contain warnings against rebellion. Sin is destructive, and we are called to turn from it. But there is another danger, and the Bible actually spends more time warning against that second danger than it does about the first. More of The prophets are dedicated to it, like 90% of Jesus' ministry is spent confronting it. Um, And the whole book of Galatians is about that second danger. Here in Galatians, Paul expresses the danger with a couple of different images. One of them is of slavery. For example, in Galatians 4, he says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved by those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God... How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? So he talks about slavery, or elsewhere in Galatians, he talks about this same idea using the term the law, living by the law. So for example, in chapter 3, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Or from chapter 5, using some of the strongest language Paul uses in Scripture, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. So whatever Paul is warning against, it's a scary thing. One of the dangers, one of the enemies is rebellion. The other enemy is religion. It is living a life of slavery, a life of the law, a life spent thinking we are good, moral, righteous people, seeking to be good, moral, righteous people in a way that undermines the gospel of Jesus. And one of the challenging but real things about Scripture is that religion is really treated as more dangerous than rebellion in the Bible. I mean, nowhere in Scripture does it say that your sin might sever you from Jesus Christ, right? But that is how Paul talks about um, returning to the law. Now here's what I want us to do this morning. Right? More than anything else, more than being a strong community or taking ownership or being organized or doing cool, cool ministries, my desire for us as a church is that we be rooted and understand and embody this truth. 
So we're just going to discuss this thing in two simple parts. We're going to talk about religion, and then we're going to talk about adoption, which is what Scripture proclaims. Religion and adoption. But before we start, just look at me, because this is important, okay? Um, The thing I want you to wrestle with is that we're going to say stuff that sounds familiar in a sense, that if you've been around the church, you've sort of heard that sort of thing, and it's easy for us to think, oh yeah, we, we understand the gospel. We understand these truths. And that is exactly what the Galatians think in the letter to the Galatians, except they are actually, Paul says, falling back into a spirit of slavery. So what I'm going to ask all of you guys to do is open your heart and listen, because these things are truths that we can sort of think we know and check off, but that actually our hearts don't believe, all right? But with that said, first let's talk about religion. Let's discuss why I'm saying religion is a great enemy of Christianity. And let me give two clarifications up front. Some of you, first of all, might bristle with that language because you say, well, isn't being religious a good thing, right? What's wrong with being obedient? What's wrong with being moral? And we're going to discuss that in a minute. But if you struggle with that up front, I just want to suggest this to you as a thought experiment to maybe get your heart in the right place. In Jesus' ministry, he interacts, well, with three groups of people. He's got sort of the crowds, which are in between. But there's two groups on extremes he interacts with, right? He interacts with sort of sinners, the, the prostitutes and tax collectors and drunks and people on the outside. And then he interacts with the religious people, the scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees. Which of those groups is Jesus harsher with? Which of those groups does he reserve most of his strong language for and really challenge and come down hard on? It is not the outsiders, right? It is the religious people. So we're going to talk more about it in a minute, but if you struggle with that idea up front, let me just invite you that what I'm going to try to do is explain why that is. And then another note for, for a lot of us, let me just define what I mean when I talk about religion here a little bit, because... There's a couple of different negative ways we can use it. By religion, I don't mean just sort of dead orthodoxy, right? I don't mean just like believing the right things but not having your heart in it. And by religion, I don't mean ritualism. Um, By religion, I don't mean just sort of like bureaucracies and institutions of the church. When I'm talking about religion, what I'm going to try to describe here is really this infection of the heart. This, this thing that can creep into our heart and distort and warp the way we are viewing our relationship with God um, that, 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 that gets us down here, right? It's not just sort of like formalism or something out there. With that said, let's talk about what religion is. And to do that, let's look at Galatians. So start at the beginning of Galatians 3. Paul says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So Paul's saying, you've got this issue. You started one way. You started by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But what's happening to you, Galatians, is that now you're operating in this different paradigm. Now you're doing something else. And that thing is the law, which we already mentioned, but let's talk about how Paul discusses it here. Read verse 10. Um, He says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, the thing is, Paul is not saying that the law is sort of evil in the sense that there's a good use for it. And he's actually going to talk later in Galatians about that good use for the law. But what he's saying is that there is a way of relating to God's law, a way of relating to God's moral commandments that is actually a curse. And what that is, he says, is by relying on works of the law. 
What does he mean by that? He means trying to use the law to become righteous. Thinking that we can take God's commandments and through kind of discipline and rigor get really good at keeping them and that that's the thing that will sort of make us righteous and elevate us in standing before God. Now again, that does not mean that the law is bad just because there's a wrong way to use it, right? The law is a true revelation of God's moral will. But the problem, Paul says, is that the law was actually never given in order to do that. It was never given in order to make us righteous and give us life. Um, In verse 21 of chapter 3, he says, Is the law then contrary to the presence of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Let me try to give another way of describing what Paul is saying. If you skip ahead to Galatians 4, he contrasts two ways we can live. And to do that, he's contrasting this, he uses this Old Testament story about Abraham. He says, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. So Abraham, if you think back to Genesis, he gets this promise from God that says, I'm going to give you a son, and from that son, you're going to have this whole nation, and you're going to have descendants and have these blessings. Um, but Abraham and Sarah are old, and a lot of years go by, and they're getting older, and it still hasn't happened, and they end up deciding that instead that Abraham will have a son by, um, by Sarah's slave, Hagar. Um, they agree that Abraham will have a child through her, which is to say that they decide that they're going to try to get this promise of God, this blessing of God, but they're going to do it on their terms through their effort rather than simply relying on his promise. And what Paul is saying is that that, what Abraham does with Hagar, is what it means when we try to justify ourselves through the law. In verse 24, he says, Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Mount Sinai is where God comes down and issues the law. And Paul says that there's a way of relating to that that is slavery. And again, why? If you go back to chapter 3, verse 10, he says, All who rely on works of the law are under a curse, because it's written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things. The covenant from Sinai, he's saying, demands perfect obedience. It's perfect. You know, it's the sort of thing that if you want to be blessed on its terms, you need to keep all of perfectly. And we don't. And that is Paul's point. That what happens when we try to live that way is we end up living like a slave. We end up living under the curse of the law. Let me try to express that theologically. Take these two ideas, our identity and our actions. All right, this hand's going to be identity, this hand's going to be actions. I'll try to keep that consistent. Um, What religion says is that our actions are what define our identity. That if you want to be a good person, you do a bunch of good stuff, and eventually you arrive at a point where you're a good person, right? And that if you do bad stuff, you become a bad person, and if you're kind of a mixture, I don't know, you're trying to, like, figure out the scales to weight them. That our actions are the thing that define our identity. As we're going to say in a minute, spoilers, I'm sorry, Christianity is going to say the opposite. It says that we get an identity, and then that changes our actions. Don't forget that we said that. But the point of that is that it's to say this. It's to say, if someone asks you, like, You know, something bad happens to you, say, and you're like, why is this happening to me? What's the first thing you think about oftentimes? Uh, If if you're like me, what you start thinking is like, well, like, have I done bad stuff or good stuff? And and you start processing through this grid of saying like, well, God must be treating me based on whether I'm doing enough good stuff or bad stuff. And that, that's operating by the law. 
Let me try to give you some diagnostics for how much the law, religion, still infects your heart. And let me give them to you while acknowledging that, like I just said, like it infects all of our hearts. These are signs of it. One, we live with a constant sense of guilt or condemnation. We always feel like we are failing or falling short or we can never do enough. We labor under a sense of unlimited obligation. We do things for God, and we feel like, ah, that's still not enough, and we feel exhausted because there's all this stuff that we're supposed to do, and we never feel like we can do enough of it. We tend to be self-reliant. We feel like we need to have it all together and be performing up to a certain standard, um, and we really pray instead <laughs> we try to do. We feel anxious over felt needs. We obsess about relationships and money and health because we constantly feel like we need these things and nobody's looking out for us except us, and so we need to secure them. We easily get defensive and feel the need to justify ourselves. I think this is one of the big ones, at least for me, that, you know, we, we tell people— we've got to prove to people that we're good people, right? And whenever something comes up that might question whether we're a good person, we, we get defensive because we have to prove it. We gossip which functionally is telling people other people's sins in order to make us feel better about ours. We obsess over self-comparisons. We're always weighing ourselves against other people, trying to convince ourselves we're farther along than them while afraid that we're not. We feel distant from God. And because of that distance, we try to do stuff for him, but it doesn't make us feel any closer. We still feel distant from God. Inasmuch as you are living like that, and again, all of that, I think, is a thing that happens to some of us. In as much as you are living like that, that means that to some extent you're still trapped in slavery, in religion. And if that's you, I have some good news for you. Although in some ways it will be challenging too. That is not Christianity. That's not what Jesus is calling you to. And for that to make sense, let's talk about adoption. The alternative to religion is what Paul here calls adoption. And we'll define it in a minute. But first, let's just see it in Galatians. First, read uh, chapter 3 about the law. Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So Paul says, the law is a curse if you're trying to use it to become righteous. But what Jesus does is he perfectly fulfills the law, but nonetheless bears its curse— and as a result of that, what we receive are the blessings of his obedience in verse 14. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might become to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Jesus bears our curse and we receive his blessing. How does that happen? Again, it's through our adoption. In chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So here is how that works together. This is important. What Paul is saying is that we are saved, and that has two parts, two halves. The first half is justification. That is that Christ suffers the punishment that we should suffer, right? We all, as we break the law and rebel against God, should um, suffer consequences for that, and Jesus suffers the cosmic consequences for our sin. But that's only half of it. And the problem is, I think sometimes we only say that, and so we're like, well, that, that gets us to neutral, right? Where we're not, like, going to go to hell or something, but, like, now, now we have to do stuff, right? But Paul's saying, also, we get Christ standing before God. 
The idea of adoption is that it's saying that Jesus, as God's perfect, beloved son, who deserves this inheritance and stands as righteous before his father and is loved by his father, that that is actually what we are brought into when we are in Jesus as well. We're not just moved to neutral. We have the same standing before God as Jesus does. We are his children. Here's how the letter to Romans puts it. It says, The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. <laughs> that Jesus' status before God is the same as yours and mine. And here's how Paul sums that up. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And just a note, the reason it says son there and not just child, is specifically because it's not just saying that God kind of cares about you like a kid in the abstract, but he's saying his son Jesus, that is the love with which he loves you, that is the way that he views you, and that is the place of privilege you have before him. Let me flesh that out theologically. Our church uses the Westminster Confession of Faith as our theological statement. And I don't know that it's—I'd often call the Westminster Confession beautiful, but this is how it defines adoption, and this is beautiful. It says, God guarantees the adoption of all who are justified in and for the sake of his only Son, Jesus Christ. Those adopted enjoy the liberties and privileges of God's children— have his name put on them, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness, and are able to cry, Abba, Father. They are pitied, protected, provided for, and disciplined by him as a father, but they are never cast off and are sealed until the day of redemption and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. Let me just walk through that to make sure you get that. It says first that God guarantees our adoption for the sake of of his only son, Jesus Christ. Meaning, if you are in Jesus, all this stuff is true of you. This is not like some later status you get. Like, if you put your faith in Christ, all of this is true. What's true? We enjoy the liberties and privileges of God's children. Meaning, my kids get certain privileges, right? Because they're mine kids, and so do yours. And we are God's children in that way. We have his name put on us, right? That, that we actually, you think about like, Part of the pride that you feel in your children has to do with the fact that they're yours, right? <laughs> sort of marked, you know, by your name, a part of your family. That is the delight that God has in you. We receive the spirit of adoption, meaning the Holy Spirit dwells in us just like Jesus. We have access to the throne of grace with boldness. I especially love this one. The image is like, we don't have kings. But if you imagine you're in a kingdom, right? Most people, when they come to see the king, they're like terrified, right? Or at least nervous. And so what you're supposed to imagine is that, um, is that you've got like this, you know, the king on his throne and you've got like this sweaty line of petitioners that are all like wringing their hands and kind of fearful coming before the king. But then you've got the king's child, right? Who just walks past all those subjects and like sits down and starts playing with I don't know, medieval toys, not Legos, but whatever they had back in those days, right? At the king's feet, while the petitioners are nervously sweating there, we have the position of that child before the throne of God. We are enabled to cry, Abba, Father. Our hearts are lifted up in praise. We're pitied, protected, provided for, and disciplined by God as a father, which means that God providentially cares for our lives, and that does not mean that we do not suffer. Remember, we have the same status before God as Jesus, right? You should not draw the conclusion from Jesus' life that there won't be hardship and suffering if you follow him, but that all of it exists within the context of God's compassion and provision 
and protection for us as children. We are never cast off and sealed until the day of redemption and inherit the promises as heirs. Amen. That is a doctrine of adoption. The reason we need to hear that is because it is so easy for us to live like that isn't true. The majority of Christians, I think, labor under a burden of slavery rather than having a deep sense of the joy and freedom and grace that they have in Jesus. Now, of course, some of us have questions about all of that. And let me just try to answer one of them. Because I think this is the question that often short-circuits us getting there, okay? What we say is we hear this proclamation that we have perfect righteous standing before God. There's nothing we can do to improve that. He's delighted in us regardless of us. And we're like, well, why should we obey then? Right? We're worried, doesn't that breed disobedience? Doesn't that encourage us not to obey God? And I want to suggest that the fact that we ask that question betrays just how deeply slavery has crept into the way we think about the world. Imagine this. Imagine that you're a parent. Some of us don't have to imagine, but if you don't have kids, imagine you have kids. And imagine that you're having a conversation with a nanny, and she says, well, I don't understand why you parents, like, love your kids and do stuff for them, right? Like, I think that being a parent would be a terrible way to take care of your kids, because I get paid. (laughs) You know, like, I, I get money to care for your kids, and you don't get anything. So clearly, like, I'm the one who's motivated to love your kids. I mean, how would you respond to that, right? You'd want to, you shouldn't, like, hit, but, you know, you'd want to, like, hit them. You'd want to be like, what are you talking about? That's, that's crazy. And the reason, though, for that is because you recognize that there is something much deeper than simply getting paid that motivates you to love your children. Guilt, fear of punishment, trying to earn our righteousness, trying to use obedience to improve our standing before God. They're like cosmic paychecks. They are slavery. They're anti-Christian motivations for obedience. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't obey, just like that doesn't mean that you don't as a parent love your kids. You just do it for another list of reasons. We obey God because we experience his love, and that actually draws our hearts to change. We obey God because it's good, and our Father knows what is best for us as his children, even if we don't. We obey God because the spirit of adoption is at work in our hearts. We obey God because obedience brings more joy than sin when we actually understand it. We obey because we have no need for these idols that we get trapped serving because our Father is the king of the universe. Those are all much better motivations for obedience than the law. The author Jerry Bridges, in his wonderful book, The Disciplines of Grace, puts it like this. He says, Nothing cuts the nerve of the desire to pursue holiness as much as a sense of guilt. On the contrary, nothing so motivates us to deal with sin in our lives as does the understanding and application of the two truths that our sins are forgiven and the dominion of sin is broken because of our union with Christ. The key thing to understand is that motivation matters in Christianity. In many ways, motivation matters more than actions. Remember, both rebellion and religion, right, miss the gospel of Jesus Christ. And one of the the great tragedies of our world is that we have made a business of moving people from the first to the second and telling them that that is Jesus. That we have taken publicans and convinced them to be Pharisees and called that Christianity. And that, that is heartbreaking because it actually misses what Christianity actually does. To return to our early year categories, you think about We said our identity and our actions. I think those are still the right hands, right? In Christianity, what it says is that Jesus gives us a new identity. 
freely by his grace from first to last. No part of it do we earn for ourselves. Jesus gives us standing before God and adoption as his sons and righteousness and all of that. But then that does drive our actions to change. But it's as a result of that identity. I think about I've had the privilege of watching several friends who undertook really challenging adoptions of children. Not the theological adoption, but adoptions of kids. And I don't mean like, I mean like kids that were like in juvie or in the system, right? Had, you know, I mean older kids who had, who had had a lot of hard experiences. And that was rough. And, I, and what I am about to say, do not hear me romanticizing the very hard thing that they often went through. But I got to see over the years as that happened that there was real change that was worked in those kids. And the question is, how were those kids changed? The answer is not discipline in the law. Because, I mean, again, some of those kids had been in jail, right? Like, they had gotten lots of, you know, of of law. What they got instead was a new identity. They got a context within which they were told that you are welcomed, and you are loved, and you are a part of this family. And that love... Not all at once, not perfectly, but over time started to change their hearts and actually draw them to change. Christianity is meant to work like that. So let's talk about applying adoption. And we're going to do two things. We're going to talk about applying it as individuals, and then we're going to talk about applying it as a church. First, as individuals, let me just walk through that diagnostic list again and try to speak adoption to it. One, under religion we live with a constant sense of guilt or condemnation. In adoption, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? All the guilt has been paid. There's nothing more that you have to do. You can just freely stand in innocence because Jesus has dealt with your guilt. Under religion, we labor under a sense of unlimited obligation. Now, in adoption, there is still work to do, right? We're still trying to serve the Lord, but we have the freedom of doing it as his children, recognizing that there is no enough that we have to reach, right? (laughs) That we are just freely able to obey and serve him as he calls us, and there is no threshold we have to pass and nothing we have to satisfy in God. Under religion, we tend to be self-reliant and feel like we have to perform, but in adoption, we are not relying on ourselves at all but only on Christ. I mean, you do not have to have it all together. God does not care if you've got it all figured out at this point. Jesus, Jesus has called us all into his party, and all the drinks are on him, and all you have to do is come. Under religion, we feel anxious over felt needs. In adoption, we recognize that while life will sometimes be hard and sometimes be easier, our Father is the King of the universe, and he is watching over. Under religion, we get easily defensive, and we feel like we have to justify ourselves. In adoption, I mean, I don't know if you ever thought about this, but like, when we say that Jesus has justified us, that means that you don't have to justify yourself. That you have the freedom to say, you know what? Like, what is the worst that someone can say to me? That I am a, that I am a fallen, broken, hell-bound sinner? Like, God has said that that is true of me, and he has said that he loves me in Jesus Christ anyway. I have no need to defend myself. In religion, we gossip. In adoption, there's really no point in talking about other people's sins when Jesus has freely paid for ours and freely paid for theirs. In religion, we obsess over self-comparison. 
In adoption, we say that at heart, we are just as good and just as bad as every other beautiful image bearer and hellbound sinner, which are one of the same person in God's dispension, right? That, that we don't have to compare. And in religion, we feel distant from God. In adoption, we are promised the daily lived truth. God is our Father, and he delights in us in Jesus Christ. We are part of his family. And so the individual application of all of that is to say, sit in the truth of your adoption. Bathe in that. Wake up in the morning and remind yourself of it over and over every day. Because the point of this thing is that we are constantly going to be tempted to forget that. We are constantly going to be tempted to slip back to the slavery of the law. And as Martin Luther says, what you got to do is preach yourself the gospel every morning. So that's individuals. And then let's talk about, as a church, what are some ways that it should shape us? Let me briefly touch on a couple. One, we should make the proclamation of that good news of God's grace and love the central thing we are known for as Christians. Let me come at this from what I know might be a challenging angle. What are Christians known for in the world? If you ask people, like, what, you know, what, are, what, what do you know about Christians— Bible-believing Christians, right? Um, the thing most people, I think, would say is our moral stances, our position on certain moral issues. And look, this is where I know I'm going to be challenging. I am not saying that it's wrong for us to take moral stances, right? Part of our job as Christians is to bear witness to God's truth. But, um, but it also sort of breaks my heart that that's true, because what I don't hear anyone talking about is the gospel, right? Like, what if instead of those things, the first things that people said, when you're like, you know, tell me about, like, those, those Christians, you know, I mean, you know, the, we think they're kind of weird, but like, what are they about? And they were like, Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? What if, what if they were like, you know, what's Christianity about? And the first thing that came to mind is 2 Corinthians 5, God made himself, him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Or from Galatians 4, which we read, what if people, when they thought about Christianity, said when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Think about if that was the central thing we were known for. So first, as a church, our calling should be to people that, that, again, I'm not saying we don't also say those other things. There's a good and appropriate place for saying those other things, but it always should find its place under the gospel of Jesus. Second application for us. We should be a people that is constantly mindful of sin in ourselves and others. We should be a people that is constantly mindful of our sin. And that might seem like a strange application. But let me s- explain why I'm saying that. Um, there is a way of talking about God's grace that sort of on the surface sounds very similar to what I have just said, but that when you dig down into it is really the opposite. This way of saying, well, God is gracious and God is loving, and what that means is you're great. And your sins, they're not a big deal. You know, you don't really have to worry about any of that stuff. Like, you're cool. Um, And that is not what we're saying here. In Christianity, the depth of our sin and the depth of God's grace and the love he shows us in adoption are symmetrical. The more we appreciate one, the more we appreciate the other. So we should recognize and grieve our sin, but we should do it in a way that recognizes that that is calling us to wonder in the grace of God. One of the oldest saints here at Kish, who I um, love, she commented to me recently. She said, you know, Eric, 
the older I get, the more deeply I just feel how sinful I am. And the more that makes me recognize that God loves me. And this is someone like, in, you know, like at the very end of this thing. And I love that because that is what Christianity is like. Three, third thing for us as a church, we must always seek to motivate people with the love of God. We must seek to motivate people by that proclamation of God's grace and not by other stuff. This is just to name there is a danger. Um, the process of discipleship is slow, sometimes painfully slow. And there's this temptation we can fall into in all kinds of ways as a church to try to hurry it along by introducing some, some guilt and some law. And the thing about that is that, um, that that can work in the short term, but that that always sort of trades short-term growth for long-term faithfulness. It's like a corporation that tries to perform really well next quarter by trading away some of their, you know, their long-term viability. When people need to grow— What we have to bring them back to over and over is God's love and salvation for them in Jesus Christ. That is the fuel for true spiritual growth. And then our last application, we must proclaim the good news of God's adoption to the world. We must share the hope of it. And two things about that. One, which we've already kind of said, we must make sure that it is that that we're proclaiming and not religion— Right? That, that's a constant danger for us in the Midwest, especially, I think, because we're so prone to that kind of more Midwestern moralistic, like, you know, just be good people kind of way of talking. As so many people, when you're like, you know, Jesus loves you and come follow him, what they hear is like, I've got a list of rules that you should follow. And we just need to make sure that we're expressing to people, no, like, this is the grace of Jesus being expressed. But also we need to recognize that the good news of adoption actually compels us to share it. God is creating a family by his grace through Jesus alone. He's invited me into it. He's invited you into it freely. You don't deserve it. He's going out into the highways and byways and gathering in people to be his children in Jesus Christ. And if that is true, if we've been so invited, then that naturally drives us to also be inviting other people along into this thing. If you struggle with evangelism. If you struggle with calling people to follow Jesus, let me just suggest that the right way to respond to that is not to try to use guilt to motivate you. (laughs) Because again, that's exactly the thing we're warning against. But let me suggest that the best way to grow in that is to grow in your joy and delight in the gospel yourself. Jesus bought you and brought you into his family and put God's name on you and you stand spotless and righteous before the throne and you have an inheritance with Jesus Christ and God has put his Holy Spirit in you and made Jesus Christ your older brother and you come and you just taste how good that is and then that will naturally drive you to start to speak that to others as well. Like I said at the beginning, that is the foundation on which the church is meant to stand that we would be a community of people that are animated by that truth and embody that truth of being the children of God. If we miss that, nothing else matters, but the more we believe that, the more everything else naturally flows out of it. Let's pray now. Jesus, I pray that you would impress on us the truth of our adoption. Let your love soak into our hearts and speak the delight and joy that you have in us because of Jesus to us. And let that build us up in him. Pray this in his name.